This is The Coolest Show brought to you by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. It's the coolest show you know, keep the culture connected. It's the coolest show you know, in your ear, yeah, respect the expert level information, entertainment, education. Rev here, we got you covered as you hit your destination. Climate rules everything around me. Cream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your off. Coolest, coolest show you know, it's the Hip Hop Caucus. I can't tell y'all how excited I am for this conversation. I am blessed today to be sitting here with the phenomenal, wonderful Bernice Miller-Travis. Bernice, how are you doing today? I am doing so fine, Rev. And I should tell your audience that the last time I saw him, which I think was at the White House, I said, how come everybody else is on the show and I'm never on the show? So I put him on Front Street the last time I saw him. And thank you, Rev, for creating a space for us to talk. No, well, listen, no, this is a space. This show was created primarily to get across the different voices that are within our powerful movement, our movement for liberation, our movement for power. Um, it was created to highlight particularly black, brown, indigenous women of color in this leaderful movement that we have. Um, and so I just, it, it could not go on without having your voice here. So, you know, that, that wasn't, I, I'm not sure why you kept asking me the question because you were, you was on the list. I'm not, you know, it's like, you know, we, you was, you had, we had to put you at the right point so people can. As you know, as one of our producers, we have, you know, we have a great producer. We have Destiny, Cross, and Tamara, Toza Laughlin. And so, you know, we had to get the arc right. You know, we could just bring you in the beginning or at the end. We could bring you right in the point where it was time to have you. Well, I'm honored. I am honored to be sharing this this space and the mic with you today. Well, I, I want to I get right to it. So it. I want to start off for folks who don't know. Again, I'm talking to the wonderful Vernice Miller-Travis, and you can find her. She's actually active on Twitter. I want to say that. And she's at Harlem Girl 59 at Harlem Girl 59 And before I ask her all the usual questions, because she's such a powerhouse and a vanguard for this movement, you know, Vernice, I want to ask you this question and kick it off. Mm-hmm. Um, you rep Harlem pretty good. I mean, it's, it's obviously it's in your, it's in your social media handles. You talk about Harlem. And when I think about Harlem, I think about the Harlem Renaissance. I'm thinking about W.E.B. Du Bois. I'm thinking about writers like Claude McKay, Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston. I'm thinking about musicians like Louis Armstrong, Dizzy Gillespie, Duke Ellington, Bessie Smith, Billie Holiday, and without a doubt, you cannot mention Harlem without the great dancer and fashion icon, Josephine Baker. What do you, what do you think about when I bring up the Harlem Renaissance? What are your thoughts that come to you when I walk you down Marine Lane of that era of Harlem? Well, it, it has always sat well with my soul to know that that my community brought forward so much that framed or reframed how people around the world saw Black people. Um, and all our multi, multi-dimensionality in you know, all our beautiful 
expressions, our beautiful shades, all the ways that we move through the world. The writers of the Harlem Renaissance wrote about that whole experience, right? So my my first, um, and of course, now that I want to remember the name of the library, I can't, but one of my first experiences, my first library, you know, when you're in elementary school and they take you to the library and you get a library card and, you know, that's where you go to get books. Well, my think County Cullen, my first library is County Cullen. And County Cullen is adjacent to the Schomburg Center for Research in, in Black Culture, which is also a library within the New York City Public Library System, right? So that's that's my growing up, right? I grew up on Lenox Avenue and 140th Street. Hmm. And it was years, I mean, decades later before I realized that the, the Cotton Club um, was actually right there on Lenox Avenue in the where the development where I grew up, they tore it down, the original Cotton Club and a, a bunch of tenements where my grandmother and my mom lived. Um, they tore it down in urban renewal to build the development that I grew up in. Um, but it was everywhere, right? And then I go to college, you know. Um, I wanted to go to Georgetown, but I got a full ride to go to Barnett College. And my dad was like, yeah, well, that's where you will be. And I'm like, but dad, who wants to go to school in the same freaking neighborhood they grew up in, right? I mean, it's that's the the Hamilton Heights community of Harlem is where Columbia University and Barnett College are, but he wasn't trying to hear that. Um, he was trying to hear full scholarship, right? And I get there and Zora Neale Hurston's presence is everywhere. Why? Wow. Because she was the first black woman to graduate from Barnett College. Mm. Um, and so, and then I took a class my sophomore year, um, a two semester class in Afro-American literature taught by a white German, Werner Solers. And at first I was like, this white man is not going to be able to teach me anything. And oh my God, did he open my world? He opened my life. He opened my experience, but he was really a scholar of the Harlem Renaissance. And so not only did he teach us about the literature and exposed us to books that you just don't hear a lot about, but some of the some of the writers that were still alive and lived in Harlem, he had them come and speak to us in class. So my pride just it just increased exponentially to be from this place. Now, when other people would look at my community, I grew up there in the 1960s, you saw a lot of poverty. Um, a lot of dislocation. There was a, 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 an incredible heroin epidemic when I was growing up. Um, and so what people would see, right, would be a lot of social malaise. But that is not what I saw. And that was not all that I was allowed to see. And so, you know, growing up in that place in the 1960s was also an incredible thing. So I'll tell you one funny story. My mother and father worked at Harlem Hospital which was the largest employer in the community, a municipal hospital, um, city hospital. And I was born in that hospital. Hmm. And my, so my whole universe was five blocks long from 140th street to 135th street from Lenox Avenue to fifth Avenue. Sometimes we'd go over to seventh Avenue, but this, and my school, my church, everything is in this five block radius and the hospital where my parents worked. Right. So when I was about in the third grade, I was allowed to walk three blocks from my school to the hospital and, and, and uh, spend 
the remaining part of the day from three to five with my mom and my dad, right? So I'd be with my dad for a little while. I'd go up to the ward and see my mother. And then sometimes my mother and I would, you know, I'd wait for her to get off and we'd walk home together. Again, it's only five blocks I'm talking about. And when we come out the hospital on the front, the very front of the hospital, which was on Lenox Avenue between 135th and 136th, there would always be this crowd, particularly on Fridays, on paydays, right? There would be this crowd. And this crowd would be gathered around this man standing on a literal soapbox, right? Mm. And he would be just going on and on and on. And it was the crowd would just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I would oftentimes pull away from my mother and go and stand at the crowd, on the edge of the crowd. And my mother would come and just about wring my arm out of the socket, pulling me away so that we could go walk in the other direction and walk home. Now, the person was Malcolm X. Mm. And the mosque, his mosque, was walking distance from the hospital, a bit of maybe three quarters of a mile from the hospital. But he would come every payday and he would talk and proselytize and just try to wake folk up. Um, but he would stand right there where most people would be on Friday afternoon, would be coming out of the hospital or intersecting, coming by the hospital, getting off work at the subway right there. And we, we grew up Roman Catholic. And so my mother was not trying to hear anything that somebody from the Nation of Islam had to say. But it sounded good to my ears, my little ears. There was something about the cadence of his voice, about the things he was saying, about the way that people congregated around him. It just sounded interesting to me. And I'm, you know, I'm talking about second, third, fourth, fifth grade, right? A really little kid. But imagine that that's happening, you know, every other Friday in the place where you're growing up, right? Um, uh, you know, our congressman was one of the first black members of Congress, um, in the modern era. Um, Adam Clayton Powell, my dad knew him. My dad organized with him. My father was a labor leader. He was also a Mason. Um, so it was just happening. It was popping. And even though there was a lot of poverty, a lot of disconnection, a lot of social ills, um, it was also an extraordinary, extraordinary place to be. And so it defines who I am. Right. And that's why, you know, I just claim it and lift it up, um, you know, to be from Harlem is to have an extraordinary experience, to be wow. born in that hospital, to be raised by that community, um, to, you know, to have grown up in that space is one of the most magical things. And, it you know, it's just the grace of God. Right. Mm. You could be you could be a black person. You could be anywhere in these United States. But that's where God decided to to, to bring me. Wow. That's a man. That's a that's a powerful. I'm so glad I asked you that question. That's a powerful, powerful story. You know, and, and as you were talking, I mean, you lit up. I mean, you I mean, obviously your background, folks can't see you. Well, it was like watching the movie. They may see some of the videos, but you're looking fantastic. And your orange there, and your orange background, looking wonderful. Um, but you lit up the background even more. It was just something else. And I have to just say this: I want to. We're gonna get into the weeds of the environmental movement, environmental justice. We're gonna get into all these different things. But as you were talking, you just lit up as you were reminiscing about standing at the steps of Malcolm X as thinking about Adam Clayton Powell, thinking about all of these amazing thinkers that were there. And I have to ask you because we know that at key moments in our history, when social forces and 
popular culture and political life all coalesce, it mm-hmm. creates the 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 power and the new uh, national expression and the new artistic achievement of our people coming together for liberation. That forms the the Renaissance and it forms our movements. I got to ask you this: uh, that that high level question. Mm-hmm. Do you think? Our environmental movement missed this renaissance. Do you think that we 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 had we also had major people and we had major mm-hmm. moments? I, mm-hmm. so I understand mm-hmm. we're gonna get into all that. What I mean mm-hmm. the renaissance, the, the the coalescing of our of us being together as a I'm powerful a, black people. I'm gonna tell you, I don't think we did miss it. And and let me just add um two other names to that previous question that you asked me. So my elementary school. It was called Matthew Henson Elementary School, PS 100, right? Matthew Henson, the first black man to reach the, the Arctic Circle. And my principal was a woman named Adele Timpson. And she was in her 60s when she was principal. She was one of the first black principals in the New York City public school system. And she hired, so she went and handpicked all these teachers because she had a theory about educating these black children and that they should be exposed to everything. And one of the people she brought in as our art teacher was a woman named Faith Rango. I don't know if you know the great art of Faith Rango. Um, uh, Tar Beach and the Color Purple Quilts and so many other things. She was my art teacher from kindergarten to fifth grade, but she was also a leader in the black arts movement. We did not know that, right? We just knew her as our teacher. Mm. We did not know that she was also trying to really open up and open up the space and, and do a major political critique of the predominant art movement in the United States that kept black artists from being shown at museums and galleries and, and on and on and on. So that also is a part of my, of my, um, upbringing. And again, from elementary school, but about the movement and whether or not it tapped into that. So about, I think on September 24th, I had the great privilege to be invited to participate in an event with EPA administrator, Michael Regan, the first black man not the first black person, but the first black man to lead US EPA. And he did an event in Warren County, North Carolina, which is the touchstone of the EJ movement, the firmament from which the EJ movement comes. Um, uh, they were, they, the folks in Warren County, have been celebrating for about three weeks the 40th anniversary of a campaign and civil rights struggle that they led, challenging the sighting of a hazardous waste landfill in their midst. And it was that campaign that really brought all kinds of people to Warren County, but to really begin to conceptualize and understand the clear linkage between racial discrimination and environmental issues. And some of everybody was there. People were there from all over the country. EJ leaders were there from all over the country. But more importantly, these people from Warren County, many of whom are still alive, were there. Right. Mm. And plus leadership from all over EPA. And I have to tell you, I don't know when I have felt more moved, when I have felt more alive, when I have felt more clear about my calling to do this work than being at that event where Administrator Regan stands up this new program office on environmental justice and external civil rights. And equivalent to the Office of Air and Radiation, the Office of Water, um, the Office of Land and Emergency Management, it's equivalent to all these other offices with 200 staff people. They're going to fill it with 200 staff people and billions of dollars of revenue in grants 
and, and other technical assistance to give out to help communities around the country. What was important about this day is that it's a very rural community in North Carolina is right across the North, the um, Virginia, North Carolina border in Western North Carolina. I-85 runs right through, um, right through the community. And the whole movement is born of folks going back to the old school, throw down organizing, civil rights organizing, laid their bodies in the ground. Children, teenagers, senior citizens, labor, clergy, everybody, right? To keep these trucks from rolling through their community and bringing this PCB contaminated soil. So we had come, it was a full circle moment, Rev, a full circle moment to know that um, the people who first went out there and put it all on the line um, have led to this level of institutional commitment by this president, Biden, to really, really put it all on the line, bring all the resources, bring all the power of the federal government to fight and push back against environmental injustice. But it started with this grassroots civil rights, old school, demonstrating every day, people getting arrested every day. That's where we come from. And we also come from organizing from the United Church of Christ Commission for Racial Justice, Ben Chavis, whose family is from Warren County, the great Reverend Charles Cobb, who led um, who led the, the Commission for Racial Justice for many years to the United Church of Christ, Charles Cobb's son, Charles Cobb Jr., a founding member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Eva Clayton was there. Eva Clayton was mm. the first black person elected to Congress from North Carolina since Reconstruction. She's from Warren County. Um, Congressman Butterfield, who is the current congressperson uh, representing uh, that part of North Carolina, he used to work um, as a young lawyer in Eva Clayton's husband's law firm in Warren County. Soul City and Floyd McKissick were in Warren County, North Carolina. Um, uh, just It was just an extraordinary thing to be there to see that this just didn't happen, mm. right? People have been steeped in organizing and steeped in the battle for racial justice and full equality. And from that firmament came this work around environmental justice and the concept of environmental racism. So, yes, we caught it. Now, did we do a good job of transmitting what we are what we are grounded in to successive generations? Now, that's where I think we might have fallen off our game. Right, but, but, and but not- right there, but right there, Bernice, let's talk about that for a second. Okay, I think I, I want to I want to touch that first of all. I'm just I just getting I'm getting so excited. I, I feel I wasn't there for that for that occasion, um, but man, you made me feel like I was there. One, <laughs> and I and it was, and I am so happy that we do have um, Administrator Regan um, on 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 deck at EPA, and before him, Lisa Jackson and others. Yep. Who yep. have been there? So I, it, it is. It is. If ever you want to know about elections and how they have consequences, Ooh. just look at the EPA. Trying you don't got to look no further than that. Trying you, to tell you. Yeah, that's it. If you if you want to know why you should vote, period. That's EPA, right. That's that. That's one. But let me say this though, because I think that as you're talking, the one thing you know, I mentioned earlier, our our our, our fabulous producers here, Tamara and 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 Cross and Destiny, Destiny. Um, you know, she she's a little younger and I produce she's still in her twenties. Um, mm-hmm. but but brilliant as all brilliant can be. Um mm-hmm. and the one thing for her though, she'll tell you, she says that we we are one, we done dying, 
and we're done doing the same thing over and over again. So this year, as you mentioned, obviously marks the 40 years since the 1982 Warren County, North Carolina yep. protest that made public yep. the demands of what became our environmental justice movement. But my question That's is right. kind of thinking where, where Destiny is thinking that 40 years from now in 19 and 2062, she yep. ain't trying to be back in Warren County talking about yep. Uh, the 40 year anniversary. I know that's the, I listen. I, know, I mean, listen, I know she ain't thinking like that. So, as a serial entrepreneur yourself who has funded, founded organizations, created policy, looked at institutions, what have we done in the last 40 years? to move forward so that the destinies and all the this generation ain't just celebrating around a desk with a with a black man for EPA. They want so much. They, they really want clean air and clean water. What can we do now and how can we improve that? And what mistakes did we make that didn't quite pass the baton so they could be ready for this moment? Well, just starting first with the mistakes. I think we spent an inordinate and wasted an inordinate amount of time arguing with a bunch of people around whether or not environmental racism was a real thing. Mm. And we spent untold years in that debate. And one day I woke up and I said, you know what? And I think I might've said it at a NEJAC meeting. I said, I am not spending not another second of my time arguing with you people about whether or not that sewage treatment plant that, li- that is walking distance from my house is a threat to my well-being and all the other 100,000 people that live where I live in West Harlem. I'm not arguing this point with you anymore. If you don't believe that my existence is real, that's your problem. But I'm not debating it with you. I'm not spending any more time researching it, which I did at the beginning of my career. I'm not getting an advocacy about this issue, that it's real. No, it's not real. Yes, it is real. I'm not doing that anymore. And none of us should be doing that anymore because we're paying the price. While you're sitting up here engaging in this intellectual uh, process about whether or not people are really dying, whether or not people are being disproportionately impacted, whether or not environmental regulations and environmental law and statutes are being meted out equitably for communities of color, for low-income communities, for immigrants, for tribal communities. While we're doing all of that, people are catching hell. And I'm not wasting no more time doing that with you. Um, and I, I think I got up and I walked out. Of course, I came back, but, you know, for dramatic effect, right? Um, but we just engaged in that for the longest time. We did it with industry. We did it with government, right? We did it with state regulators. We did it with local municipal agencies, We did it with everybody and their mama debating this issue. But what was what was just completely um, dislocating about that is that. But when you go home every night, no matter where you live, right, you could live in what's that neighborhood in um, in Los Angeles, Mr. Los Angeles. What's that? That black Hollywood. Well, it's all kind of black Hollywood. You said it's black Hollywood. Uh, uh, not Compton. I mean, we, you know, I'm from the hood no, now. You about, I mean, Hills, Baldwin Hills, right? Even if you are affluent and you have big, beautiful houses and lots of grass and all those things that we all, you know, used to say we want, you still are living in a community with 
active oil refinery going on mm. right where you live, right? And you and your children are breathing that every damn day. It didn't matter where you lived in this country. It didn't matter your level of educational attainment. Didn't matter how much your house cost or didn't cost. You were still going to be exposed to these issues. And so there really wasn't, we, we should not have wasted that time debating the issue. And we did it for a really long time. And then I think we all got to a point of saying, well, look, the data is conclusive, both the data that government is collecting, as well as the data that we are independently collecting, as well as academic institutions, the data is replete. We are being impacted. But not only are we being impacted, what the folks in Warren County taught us is that we were targeted. It wasn't random what happened to them. It wasn't random what was happening to our communities. We were targeted for these kinds of land uses. So people were coming for us every day in every way. So I don't know that we have necessarily transmitted that information, but the one thing I think that that Destiny and her generation can look for, can, can know for sure, we ain't debating this issue no more. Everybody is clear. Not only are they clear about the disproportionate exposure of people of color, to environmental threats and harms. They're clear about the differential rates of premature death from environmental exposures. That's clear. All the data supports that. But we've also taken this conversation worldwide, right? People talk about environmental justice and climate justice worldwide. They weren't talking about that before 30 or 40 years ago. We brought that conversation to the world. We brought that conversation to the world. So this whole global movement around environmental justice and climate justice grows out of this movement here in these United States. And so I think it's, I think their generation is going to take this conversation to a different place. It's going to develop different kinds of tools, but it's also not going to stand for a lot of this nonsense. And that I really, really, really appreciate. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to. No, no. And and Bernice, they appreciate, because I'm telling you something, when they, as right now, they listen to this, they're going to be, Opened up to probably hopefully another uh, this this voice that some may know, some may not know, that they probably gonna be whoa wait a minute to Bernice Miller Travis, and they're gonna be like, let me listen because you have put yourself in a position where you can speak truth to power, kind of in on the heels of that Renaissance movement where you can you have always this is why I love you. You have always been able to be clear in your love for black people Absolutely. and for liberation. And Absolutely. so in that, it comes across clearly. So my question then to you is this, because as you're talking, I have to then ask, this is such a critical moment, because the previous decades of the environmental movement worked mm-hmm. largely through the government, the U.S. government, to be clear. Yep. The Environmental Protection Agency, after yep. calling for these agencies in the civil rights era to 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 be to to be accountable, but in reflection, would you have called for a different way, a different policy well, levers other than NEPA, other than the Clean Water Act, other well, than NEPA, even the executive order on EJ? I, I'm just well, wondering. Let, let me let me just say that there are two pieces of federal legislation, federal law and statute that I really love Mm. because of their complexity and comprehensive nature. One is the Civil Rights Act of 1964, 
and the other would be the National Environmental Policy Act of 1971 and 72, right? And they are really, really, really comprehensive. The challenge is that people like to narrowly define what they do and what they say, and then they all, and then they like to interpret it in a certain way, but not look at the expansiveness of it. And I, I would just say this about the Civil Rights Act of 1964, when the Supreme Court ruled in favor of marriage equality. You know what law they ground that decision in? The Civil Rights Act of 1964. Now, in 1964, people were not thinking about marriage equality. People were not thinking about LBTQIA issues and liberation and equality. But they wrote that law such that it would talk about creating and expanding rights for all peoples who were discriminated against, Mm. right? So um, discrimination against women grounded in the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Discrimination against differently abled people grounded in the Civil Rights Act of 1964. These were not things that they were conceptualizing in 64, but yet when we go back to look at, well, how can we address these issues within our, our current legal structure? People keep going back to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 because it's so expansive. The same thing is true of NEPA, but NEPA has never actually been fully enforced. So one of the provisions of NEPA that hardly ever, ever gets lifted up is that, and so NEPA covers facilities or programs or projects that that are that serve a federal purpose, right? Like a highway or a port um, or a sewage treatment plant or a power plant, et cetera but that have significant federal implications and are built significantly with federal resources. So one of the things that NEPA calls for is a social impact analysis of that project. Could be an airport expansion. You ever heard anybody doing a social impact um, analysis, say, for example, for the expansion of LAX? No, they just built that damn thing and then just kept building it and building it and building it, right? But they violated the law. It also says that You have to look at three scenarios in NEPA. You have to look at build, right? So if you build the, if you build the the facility, what will the environmental implications be? You have to look at modification, right? Or mitigation. So you build it, but you mitigate for certain environmental impacts that that you can project are going to happen. Or you don't build it. It's called no build. You ever heard anybody going with no build, right? You ever heard anybody picking that one up? Um, this highway is maybe going to be disadvantageous to these people. So we're going to recommend that we not build it. You ever heard the federal government do that? Mm. You ever heard the Army Corps of Engineers say, yeah, no, we're not going to do this project, right? They never picked no bill. That's in the law. So there is the law. There is a com- complex understanding of the law. And there is equal application of the law, right, which is a provision within the Constitution, the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. It says, and it's right across the entrance of the Supreme Court, all people are to be treated equally before the law. That's the Constitution. Have we seen that happen? Have black people experienced that in these United States or brown people or Latino people or indigenous people? Hell no, we haven't. And women have largely not experienced the full equal protection of the law in every space that we operate. So I wouldn't say we should throw them out, Rev. I would say, or we should um, redo them. I would say that we should make sure that we are fully understanding what the laws say and then fully executing the law so that everyone is protected equally before the law. But 
I guess the other thing that I that I would say to folks, and I, and I want to say I agree with you one hundred percent on that. I would say to folks is that you got to bring everything to the to the picnic, right? You got to bring everything. You can't have a picnic that just has chicken and potato salad, right? You can't. You got to bring everything. You got to bring the lemonade. You got to bring the fruit. You got to bring the corn. You got to bring the salad. Whatever your culture is, you got to bring those things that express your culture. You can't just have a couple things. You got to have everything. So what we've learned now is you need artists. You need folks working in popular culture. Why? Because people pay attention to popular culture. You can't just be in the courtroom. You can't just be before Congress. You can't just be in these federal spaces where we're having public meetings. You got to tell the story in the forums where people can hear it, right? You know that expression, you got to put the put the hay where the, where the goats can get it, right? You got to give people information, but you also got to bring everybody to the picnic. Hmm. It's no fun to just have a few people. You want, you want every kind of person, right? You want lawyers, you want public health folk, you want doctors, you want spoken word artists, you want visual artists, you want writers, you want organizers, organizers and organizers. Let me just say that again. People tend to think that when you do environmental work or environmental justice work, you need all these people with with fancy degrees. But you need the most basic science. And the most basic science is how to organize and motivate people, right? How to empower people, how to get people fired up enough about a particular issue or issues that are happening in the places where they live that they want to get involved in whatever the process is to change those conditions so that people can be safe where they live. That's organizing. And organizing is a science. It doesn't normally get lifted up. It doesn't get valued at the same level in our community of environmentalists and environmental justice folk. We tend to think of organizers as people who don't have a lot of skill. But I'm going to tell you, all these other people with all these other degrees, they can't move people, Hmm. right? They can't mobilize people. They can't get people to come out in the street and do what needs to be done until a policy or an action is changed. They can talk you. To, to sleep, but they can't motivate people to get out in the streets and, and do what needs to be done. So I saw a sign during the Black Lives Matter protest. I'm not going to quote the whole thing because it's a it's it, it's a little racy, but I'm going to just say most of it. We are not our we are not our ancestors. We will mess you up. Right. And I think that that's an important thing to say in a particular day and time one set of strategies was important and we've evolved over time. Sometimes you got to do it different, right? It's not always the way it, the things that were effective in 1950 are not necessarily the things that are going to be effective in 2022, but you want to learn the lessons of what were those strategies that people employed? What was, what were the tactics What was their analysis? And that's one thing I think that we don't do enough of. And I really do love, and I'm a student of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the tactical approach to organizing, Hmm. the tactical approach to motivating people, the tactical approach to deconstructing the various forms of oppression. And then what do we need to do to, to, to break that down? People were extremely tactical and extremely sharp about what they were doing. And they studied and they trained. They didn't just show up in the street. They trained for how they were going to show up. Right. They didn't just say, I'm going to get uh, I'm going to swing it with the police. 
They decided they were not going to fight back. And in so doing, it brought the whole system to its knees, right? But they were fighting back. They just weren't fighting back physically. That's one set of strategies. If you want to employ those set of strategies, my point is that they did a lot of preparation. And that preparation was steeped in training and knowledge and understanding and in figuring out strategically what is the way that we want to move forward. And I don't know, Rev, that we used to do a lot of that, but I don't know that we are doing that so much. So we have like a thousand flowers bloom kind of approach. Mm -hmm. Everybody is throwing down everywhere. And I think that's good. But what is our strategy? What are our tactics? What are we trying to accomplish? And how do the pieces fit together? And I don't know that we're doing as much of that as we need to be so that we can be effective on a grand scale. Well, I, I want I want to talk about that strategy, but I mean, and that's, we, we have to get to that. I think folks are listening and, and let me just say this to you, Bernice, you on fire. You on fire. You on fire here today, boy. And, and I'm, I'm going to keep that fire kindling uh, right, right now. Because I think as you were talking and I agree with you, I, I organizing, mobilizing, energizing, it takes, strategy. It takes preparation. It takes love. It takes love just for your people. It takes love just for you to be in this process. All of that. My my thing here is this, as you're talking and I understand, I listen, I can't, I listen, even though I was around in, in 1991, physically, I was, I was just a student <laughs> myself. So, you know, I wasn't able to be in, in, in the same position that I'm in mm-hmm. now. So I, I don't want to go back in play, you know, you know, hindsight is 2020. I I don't want to do that, but I do want to say this, that we're in this moment now, and this is partly not even just for uh, uh, the the younger folks who are now in their 20s and 30s, but this is just across the movement. We're Mm -hmm. in a moment now when the fossil fuel industry business plan is clearly a death sentence for our community. They are strategically killing our people are putting coal-fired power plants, toxins, pollutions near our schools, near our mosques, near our churches. They are designing that to kill us. And folks are saying that, listen, I'm with marching if it has a purpose. I'm with voting. If it has a, I'll do all of that. But we, we again, are done dying here, Vernice. Vernice, we can't keep, just keep going through having conferences. We can't keep going through the Absolutely. process when our Absolutely. people, our mamas are getting cancer, our children are getting asthma, our fathers are getting emphysema. We can't keep playing this thing when our people are going through genocide and being Absolutely. cleaned off, not only here in America, but across the, the globe. Over. Because these entities Absolutely. are doing it in on the continent, they're doing it in the global south, and they're doing it in southeast and in South Compton. How can we be so nice to people who are killing us? How can we be so this going about our business this way? Vernice, please tell the folks what is it we got to do because they are ready to bust the doors wide open. Well, I want to say that people are throwing down everywhere. And I want to I want to lift up a name and in so doing, just lifting up the names of a whole bunch of people who work for him, with him, um, Patrice Sims and his team of people at Earth Justice are throwing down, absolutely throwing down. They are litigating in every place. They are in Louisiana, right? 
They are working with tribal communities. They are working on water issues. They are throwing down everywhere and they're winning, right? So you may not see it, but there are, there are people hardcore up in this fight, fighting people who are doing evil and bad things, hardcore. Um, labor unions are doing that as well, protecting their workers from exposure to, you know, to hazardous chemicals and the like. All kinds of people, the the American Nurses Association are throwing down around what is happening in the public health arena. A lot of people are in this fight. And I agree with you, Rev, to the core of my being. We are so, so, as, as Fannie Lou Hamer said, we are sick and tired of being sick and tired. We are sick and tired of dying. We are sick and tired of being maimed. We are sick and tired of being targeted because of the color of our skin because of who we are, because of where we live. We are so done with that. But people are not laying down about it, right? So you can, you should go to the hearings. I'm, I'm never going to give that up because if you don't show up at the public hearings, people are going to make decisions about how this oil and gas infrastructure continues to expand. And the next thing you know, you're going to be living next door to some shit you don't want to live next door to. You got to show up. You got to go to the planning board hearings. You got to go to the city council meetings. You got to go. Bring your kids with you. That's what my daddy used to do. Bring your children with you and expose them to what it means to show up and fight for your, yourself, your family, your household, and your community, right? Train them up that way of what it means to not just go about your everyday and say, you know, it really smells bad here. Got to figure out what is that? Why am I being exposed to it? And hold people to account. Hold people to account. But I agree with you about the fight with the oil and gas industry. It's not just them. It's also chemical manufacturers. But I think, and I don't want to put too much on his shoulders because he already has a lot on his shoulders, but I think Mike Regan is showing us a new way, right? And I and what I love about him as the EPA administrator is that you know, he's 46 years old. He doesn't have any of the baggage that some of the rest of us have and bring into this conversation. He is taking EPA in a whole different direction. But I also see Brenda Mallory doing that at the White House Council on Environmental Quality. I certainly see Deb Haaland doing that as the secretary of the Department of, Ener- uh, of, of um, Interior. I see um, Secretary Granholm doing that in the Department of Energy. And bringing some climate justice people onto her staff to move the Department of Energy in a different direction. Now, I need to see what's going on at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. I haven't seen how they're being shook up because Lord knows they need to be shook up. But the Department of Energy regulates where they go. The Department of Transportation. I mean, if you, you know, if you want to listen to new voice and new leadership, listen to what Secretary Buttigieg says whenever he is in a public forum. He throws down so freaking hard, so hard. He don't take no mess from these right-wing people, none. He doesn't get excited like Vernice. He's very, very calm, right? But he take, he reaches into their chest and rips their hearts out and says, yeah, that's ignorant, right? We can have electric vehicles. We can do transportation policy in a different way, but we can do it in a way that doesn't destroy communities. That's what he says, right? So if you look at the people who are in leadership in this administration, they are not 
all folks who have been around for a really long time. Some have, but most have not. And they're bringing new fire, new interpretations, new ways of thinking about the work and the federal workforce and even state governments is, is, is aging out, right? At EPA, they're calling it the silver tsunami. Mm. People are not being pushed out. They've just reached the age of retirement. Well, it's time for y'all to step up and come on in. And the more young people that are in these agencies, the more the work moves in a different direction, right? The more we use the tools that we have in a different way, or the more we fight to create the tools that we don't have, but we need. But you got it. That's what I meant about that picnic metaphor. You got to bring all kinds of people to the party. Mm. And it takes all kinds of people to move us forward. And that, and I think that's why we have had success in the environmental justice movement, because we got all kinds of people with all kinds of skills that bring it all kinds of ways. Last thing I'll say about the all kinds of people. So as you said, I'm on Twitter as my only social media outlet because it's so freaking easy. So I, I can do Twitter. Um, and I see this story. Um, I see this post from Dallas go to, right. And he's talking about this story, this show that he's on, right. And that he writes for and that he's a comedian. I didn't know that part of Dallas. I didn't, I've known his father for decades, right? I only know him as someone who throws down and fights back about the pipelines, the oil pipelines and gas pipelines crisscrossing through Indian country. I didn't know that Dallas had this whole other set of, of skills, but my point is he's throwing down in both spaces, right? He's changing the way that people see and envision indigenous people, but he's also still on the front lines fighting these oil and gas pipelines. You need all the skills. You need all the talents. You need everything we got because the people that we're fighting, they have untold resources, but also really bad motivation Hmm. that profit is the most important thing in the world. And if you have to destroy the ecology, if you have to destroy the earth, if you have to destroy um, uh, li- every living thing. We're living through the sixth great mass extinction of species been going on since the 1970s, right? Oil and gas and chemical manufacturing and industry and our, our, uh, our transportation system, our antiquated transportation systems, our dependence on gas. All of that has brought us almost to the brink of civilization. And we owe these young people, we owe them so much more than we've given them. So if they say they want to roll in a different way, then we have to support them. If they say they have different strategies that they want to deploy, then we have to support them. We have to find the resources to help them do what it is that you're trying to do. But what we cannot do is stand in their way. That's what Mm. we cannot do. My, my, my. That's for you, Destiny. Man, my, 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 my. Woo-wee. Listen, I'm on the edge of my, I don't know where you're listening to this. At, but I'm on the edge of my seat <laughs> in in the conversation on the edge of my seat, man. <laughs> Vernice, I just want to. Then this time goes so fast, man. This is why I guess this is why people love this show because it goes fast for me. I know it goes fast for you listening to it. Touching back to the thousand flowers blooming in your decades, because you you have I think you brought some great points that I think lead to this question. In your decades of experience, can you then help us to understand how to then, in this movement, fight ego, fight Ugh. clicks, 
fight mm. territorial behaviors in mm, 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 this mm. in this here movement that we live in? How do we realize the generational benefits that you're talking about? That but about but but limit the power of hoarding and dysfunction by only lifting up one person here as a lone wolf or a savior. How, how do we get to, how do we get to that point? Well, the first thing is to be really clear about why we are here. And I guess, you know, Rev, you and I have had this conversation before about what brought us here, right? You have a calling from God. I feel that I was on a path. I thought I was going to be a civil rights lawyer. And I got to work as a research assistant at the United Church of Christ Commission for Racial Justice. And the heavens opened and the angel spoke to me and said, I know you thought you were going over there, but this is your work, mm. right? This is your work. And I, I get it that not everybody gets a, a clear calling like that, but we got we to gotta remember and recognize why are we here? What are we doing? What is our purpose? And my purpose, I've, so I've been very clear and I'm blessed to have been very clear about why I'm doing what I'm doing. But I also was blessed to be thrown in with a group of people who were building a social movement. That don't happen every day, right? And I just happened to be there, Rev. I just literally happened to be there, standing there, and everything just started popping right? In my own neighborhood, um, where I worked, it just started popping. And I was in the mix. I was 27 at the time when I, you know, when I met all these folks and stuff started jumping off to build and grow the EJ movement. But from my vantage point, I could see that we were carrying on the work of the civil rights movement. We were carrying on the work of um, the indigenous liberation movement. We were carrying on the work of Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta and the United Farm Workers, right? We were, all we were was continuing work that had already come before us. We were just connecting the dots that at the center of so much of that work was environment and environmental threats and racial justice. You got to be clear about what you're doing and why you're doing it, right? So I've always been clear, it's not about me. Right. I've always been clear that I am part of a movement. And I think a lot of us have lost our clarity about what it is we're doing and why are we doing it. Some people are building platforms for themselves. I tell you what, if you are really, really good at what you do, that space will find you. Amen. Right. You don't need a podium. Right. Because somebody go stick a mic in front of your face and say, say something to the people. Right. Again and again and again and again. Got to be clear about why we are doing what we're doing. And I've always been clear that, and I guess it's because my, my mother was a nurse at that hospital I talked about at the beginning, Harlem Hospital, for 43 years. It's the only job she ever had. And so my mother was about healing people. And I think I'm doing what she did. I'm just doing it from a different vantage point. My, my people are in pain. My people are suffering. I have lost, and, and some of these people, Rev, you never got to know because they died before their time, right? I have lost so many friends in this movement who died before their time. Hardly any of the people in this space that I started with, hardly any of them 
live to just die a natural death in an old age, right? I was so glad to see Dolly Birdwell when we were in North Carolina in September. Dolly's 74 years old, and she really is one of the mothers of the EJ movement. And she's going just as strong as she can be. I was so glad to see her. I just held her hand and stood next to her most of that day because I was just so thankful that I had come along in a time that I had somebody like Dolly to model for me how to be a servant leader. And I think that notion of servant leadership also is lost in the sauce. People want to be in the space. Some of us are old and still want to be in the space. Some of us are young and want to be in the space, right? But that is not the purpose of the work. It is not. And if you think that's the purpose of the work, then you have lost your sense of clarity. It's not about you. It's not about me. As long as people are still suffering and catching hell, as long as people cannot get access to clean and safe drinking water, as long as some people are still living in conditions where they don't have active sewage treatment, they don't have active wastewater, they don't have indoor freaking plumbing. Thousands of households in this country do not have indoor plumbing. As long as those conditions still exist, that's what the fight is about. That's what the work is about. That's what we all should be about. It's not about me, right? It's not about you. And, you know, there's a conversation going on about who's the father of this and who's the mother of that. And I'm just going to end this here. There is no father and there is no mother of the EJ movement. And why is that? Because we made a conscious decision at the first People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit in 1991 that there would be no one person that we would elevate and lift up as the voice of the environmental justice movement. Why is that? Because there were thousands of EJ movements going on at communities, in, on, on tribal lands, all over, at the border, everywhere, that none of us could claim to be the sole source of this work. What made us powerful is that it was all of that work together feeding into one stream to change our notion of the environment and environmental protection in this country and that it had to be based on racial justice, had to be grounded in that, had to be. One, no two ways about that. And to the extent that people are advocating for themselves as the titular head, there is no head. I'm just here to tell you, I was there. I was there at the beginning. I was there. And when I tell you there is no one individual that's responsible for this work, there isn't. That makes us profoundly different than the mainstream environmental movement, right? Because there were, there were some key people who did some key things. I'm on the board of Clean Water Action. Dave Zwick was the founding executive director of Clean Water Action. One person. He had a team, but really Dave Zwick was, was up there by himself. We were never by ourselves. Never. We were always part of a movement. We were always part of community. Always. So when you hear somebody say that there's a father or a mother, there really isn't. Um, now, people have made extraordinary contributions to advance this work. Ain't no question about that. But all of us in every community, in every struggle, in every fight, wherever we've been fighting for environmental justice and against environmental racism, all of us have contributed to bring us to where we are. Now we got to pass the baton, right? And let the next generations behind us take us to the, to the next level. Now, I'm going to say to y'all after I done said that, don't be trying to push nobody out the way because we ain't going. 
right? Don't be trying to push people off the bus because we ain't going. We made the bus, right? We put the gas in the the tank. We made sure that it could get from point A to point B. We navigated it when there wasn't no GPS to get to where we are. So don't be trying to push nobody off the bus. I see a lot of that going on. But we can't be on there by ourselves, right? We need everybody. Back to that picnic metaphor. We need everybody. And I don't know, you know, if you've been a really good picnic, it's one when there's a lot of people, right? A lot of people doing a lot of different things. There's people playing bid whist, right? There's people playing dominoes. There's people jumping rope. There's people barbecuing. There's the seniors sitting around telling the stories. There's the children running around having a good time. There's live music, probably, right? I mean, and that that's the kind of picnic that I want to be at, where everybody shows up and everybody is welcome. That's 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 the movement that I've been trying to build. And that's that's what makes me happy. Mm. Man, let me just I gotta get on my feet. Y'all. I don't know where you listen to this at, but I'm I'm gonna get me right now. This guy, this guy, that's a that's a standing ovation right there, boy. That's a drop mic. Woo, man. Bernice Miller Travis. My, 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 my. Listen, so this is the deal here. I that time, Bernice, you gotta promise me. You're you gonna come back to the show. You, you know that. Okay, if you good, ask me, good. you know I'm coming. If Destiny asks, you know I'm coming. If we only got halfway asks, through. You know yeah, coming. we only we only got halfway. I know tomorrow Destiny gonna get on me because I already got about like the four questions out the whole <laughs> question sheet. So I my gotta come answer, back to about foundations and about all kind of research and all and about <laughs> man, I got someone to come back. But this is just a, this, this is just the first part. But y'all got next season, you know, we we gonna bring Bernice Miller Travis back. Bernice, how can people follow and support you? Well, you can follow me on Twitter at HarlemGirl59. Um, you can uh, come to our website at Metropolitan Group where I work, um, www.metropolitangroup.com or metgroup.com, one of the two. Um, and uh, you can follow We Act for Environmental Justice, um, the nonprofit that I'm the co-founder of. You can follow Clean Water Action. Um uh, Anacostia, Smithsonian Anacostia Community Museum. Um, there's just a, you know, um, uh, the Patuxent Riverkeeper. Um, there's a lot of different ways to, you know, to follow along the work that I am engaged in and the things that I care about. Um, NRDC Action Fund, um, just lots of, you know, lots of different ways and venues. But, you know, the most important thing folks can do is just be engaged, show up, right? Find out what's happening in your community and show up. Half the battle is just showing up. Hmm. My dear sister, love you so much. And that's our guest today. EJ Pioneer, Bernice Miller-Travis. And I am Rev Yulia, your host of The Coolest Show. Thank you, my sister. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Follow us at Think100Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to repeat. It's the coolest show you know. It's the coolest show you know.